glad to be able to sing that Christ is enough. And I hope that uh, by the end of our time together, we all can be singing out and shouting and uh, confessing that Christ is enough. What an awesome song. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 3. We'll be looking at that text in a little while. Uh, tonight, today is more of an opening, um, kind of an opening to, opening to what will be uh, several messages um, on what I'm sure from the title card you might can suspect what they're going to be about or who they're going to be, going to be about and where our, um, just from Matthew alone, you can suspect that we're going to be going, uh, spending a little bit of time uh, with Matthew's gospel since that we're uh, starting um, early on in the book. Uh, but yeah, we'll look at that uh, chapter and those verses in a little bit. Uh, but I want to kind of just set the stage for um, really why I feel so, uh, I feel led to uh, do these messages. Um, I've been wanting to preach through uh, the, these, this particular, um, on this particular idea and through these particular texts for a while. Um, and uh, I think there's a good way to kind of get us all thinking um, in the right way and, and, and our hearts all kind of tuned to the right to the same place. Um, has anybody ever heard the song, um, the, uh, speaking of awesome songs, the song Red Letters by Crowder? Y'all have heard that song? If you haven't, you ought to leave here and either pull it up um, on your computer, your phone, or if you turn on uh, the 106.9, you'll probably hear it in the span of 20, 30 minutes. It's pretty popular. Um, but uh, David Crowder uh, is the, the lead singer. Um, uh, really does a solo thing now. He used to, be, he used to have a band called the David Crowder Band. Um, but his band has made famous many awesome songs. Uh, they've done a lot of hymns that um, uh, it, it really just brought a lot of hymns back that uh, uh, haven't been sang uh, really on mainstream for a long time. Um, but they've also popularized uh, a song, How He Loves. Most of you have heard that song before. Um, he has some orig- original stuff. Um, I'll Praise Him, um, I Am. Uh, come as you are. Uh, he does a lot of covers, a lot of original stuff. Uh, but Crowder really brings a unique Southern like folk touch to the gospel music ether, and he really is very unique and, and something that uh, we're very grateful for in, in the gospel and the Christian community. But the song Red Letters, um, phew, if you've ever heard it, uh, you know uh, just how awesome it is. But if you haven't, I can't t- tell you enough how, how much you need to listen to it, especially after today's message. Uh, but even if you haven't heard it, you probably know what it's about, um, uh, and you probably can know what this sermon's going to be about. But just from the idea, um, you know what it's about. You probably know who it's about. Uh, the, the story of the song is, uh, is about the impact that Jesus, specifically his words, has had on a man who is at the end of his road. He is overcome by guilt. He is overwhelmed with life in general. He opens up the New Testament and he notices that in his Bible, some of the words are in red. And he goes through and he reads the gospels. He reads the words of Jesus and his life is absolutely and eternally changed. The chorus of that song goes something like this. Then I read the red letters And the ground began to shake. The prison walls started falling. And I became a free man that day. As in, it was in the moment when the Word began to wash over and when the power of the Scripture began to have an impact on my heart. It wasn't a later effect. It wasn't after many months of studying and and digging in to making sure that the text was credible. It was in the moment of hearing the words as if they came straight from the mouth of the Savior. That my life began to change. And here's what you know, and I hope you, know, I hope you believe this, and if you're in church, you probably do, but if you're still kind of on the edge, it's okay. But we believe, and, and, and the song is really all about how the Word is the witness, not a witness, but the witness of what God has done in our world for the world. In the Spirit of God, we believe He works from page to person to make God's work personal. 
Here's the awesome thing. If you, if you want to experience the Spirit of God, you hear people talk about that. You know, people say, I'm Spirit-filled, and I don't, you don't know what that means. Listen, if you want to experience the Spirit of God, it's not about where you are. It's not about how loud the music is. It's not about how great the preacher is. The Spirit of God moves from page to person. The Word of God, inspired by the Spirit, the breath of God moves from every word to every person that reads. And you can experience the presence of God, the Spirit of God, every time with a sincere heart that we open the Word of God. I believe, we believe, the Bible itself teaches the Spirit of God moves from page to person. And I'm glad that it's not up to me to drum up enough energy and excitement to get the Spirit of God in our midst. I'm glad it's not up to people, whether they come in droves or in dozens or in hundreds. I'm glad it's not up to the voices and the energy in the building because if it was up to us, it would be good sometimes and bad other times. I'm glad it's up to God, and I'm glad He keeps His part of the deal all the time. The bridge of the song goes like this. His arms spread wide where mine should be. Jesus changed my destiny. And listen, that's why Sunday after Sunday we gather and worship Jesus and study His Word because we truly believe that Jesus' perfect life, His atoning death, and His revolutionary resurrection can change anybody's destiny. I believe that, and I hope you believe that as well. I hope you've experienced that change. And I hope it's an ongoing thing. We believe that there is no greater source, there is no equal source when it comes to bringing us revelation from God. God's Word is complete, it's finished, it's open to everyone. God is not privatized or given exclusive nuggets to certain holy people. God's Word is the full measure of His revelation. And the cornerstone of the content and the record of the book is Jesus, the Lord and Savior. We believe and we affirm that the Bible is the complete, inspired Word of God. And we believe and we know that the Bible continues to inspire and complete lives. The Bible is the inspired and complete Word of God. And the Bible continues to inspire and complete the people of God. And the Word is rooted in, based on all of it, magnifies the life and the work of Jesus. The old prepares for Him. The new responds to Him. The old points to Him. The new reveals Him. The New Testament includes a detailed accounts, four of them actually, of Jesus' life, with the new, rest of the new chronicling what happened after He rose back to life and His followers obeyed His last will and testament, His New Testament, and they kick-started the church. And for a lot of us, the words of Jesus have been something that we've always thought and knew were special. Maybe you didn't realize how special they were. I hope we can get into that over the next couple of weeks. But maybe the Bible in your lap, um, maybe the one you grew up reading, the one in the back of the pew at your home church, maybe the one that you are reading right now, the words of Jesus were given special prominence uh, on the pages. Maybe they are the one you're looking at. Maybe you have one. I don't think anyone here hasn't had or hasn't held at some time a Bible with, as it's often denoted in the inside cover, with the words of Christ in 
red. And if you don't have one, it's okay. Mine, actually, that I'm reading from this morning doesn't have words in red, so it's not any less inspired, just to let you know. So we're safe here. But if your Bible has red letters, you know what we're talking about. And if you don't, if it doesn't, you've all had one before. Maybe you know the story, maybe you don't, but the first Bible printed with the words of Jesus in red letters was back in 1901. So contrary to maybe what you thought, it's not been that way all the time, right? It wasn't written in red ink back in the Greek, in the Greco-Roman days, right? Um, I used to think that, so I'm not, if you thought that, I'm not making fun of you. I used to think that. I wish it was that way. That'd have been cool, but it wasn't. But the first Bible, um, actually the first New Testament was printed in 1899. The first complete Bible um, was printed in 1901. And the idea of printing the words of Christ in red originated with a guy named Louis Klopsch. It's a pretty cool name, right? You want to say it with me? Louis Klopsch. So it's like plop, but you put the shit on the end of it. So Klopsch. That's a cool name. I, I, you know, I, I don't know much about his background. I, I, study, I went too far down another rabbit hole studying this guy. But he's got a cool name, so you probably won't forget that. If you don't want to forget it, you should write that down. But Louis Klopsch, um, he was actually the editor of a Christian magazine back in this era um, called the Christian Herald Magazine. Um, he was a close friend to a preacher you probably heard about, D.L. Moody, kind of the Billy Graham of his era. Um, Klopsch actually worked in Moody's Bible Institute, one of the biggest um, and earliest American American Bible Institutes for training and teaching preachers and ministers um, and starting missions here and around the world. Um, he lived his life to be the hands and feet of Jesus. He's raised so much money in his life to fund charities and relief efforts around the world. But no cause was dearer to Klopsch's heart than that of Scripture distribution. Um, in, in reading, uh, through uh, the Christian Herald, Klopsch published more than 60 thousand Bibles and New Testaments annually during much of his tenure um, as the editor of that magazine. And he wanted to do even more to get the Bible into more people's hands. He wanted people to read the Bible and understand, particularly um, he wanted to know, wanted people to understand what it says about Jesus, because Jesus, of course, is the main subject and the main character. Klopsch came up with the ideas of printing some of the biblical texts with red ink, when Jesus' own words appeared to him in a way that he, they hadn't before. When Jesus, in Luke 22, at the Last Supper, he says, this cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. So he had this idea, the new covenant, the New Testament, it's the word of Christ, uh, special, needs to be given special uh, uh, place and special interest or special prominence. And he thought, the red symbolizing the blood, that would be a great way to bring special attention to Jesus' own words. So Klopsch, um, set out to do this, and he wrote an explanatory note in the cover of the original first run of the Red Letter Bibles, and this is what the quote reads. Modern Christianity, and we'll talk about that, is striving zealously to draw nearer to the great founder of the faith. Setting aside mere human doctrines and theories regarding him, it presses close to the divine presence to gather from his own lips the definition of his own mission to the world in his own revelation of the Father. The Red Letter Bible has been prepared and issued in the full conviction that it will meet the needs of the searchers after truth everywhere. Now, you notice in that quote, he mentions modern Christianity. He mentions p trying to, to go away from human theories and human ideologies. And the reason why he mentions those is not, it's not a, a, um, um, unintentional. That statement in particular was a response to an ongoing struggle within the church to accept the Bible as sufficient 
and as proof of the life and legacy of Jesus. And this might surprise you because we often think about, well, the, the world used to be so much better and people used to be believe the Bible more and people used to be so much more holier. But this might surprise you at just how dark of a time this was for the church. Uh, really, uh, Klopsch and Moody both worked in this era to swing the church back in the right direction after almost 200 years of drifting away. The uh, Klopsch and Moody and their contemporaries fought against the drift within the church as the, uh, people began to search beyond the Bible for sources concerning the historical Jesus. Now, this may be hard for you to believe, but the 18th and 19th and on into the 20th century church, that era was dominated by an increasingly held ideology that the Jesus of the Bible was more myth than fact. Christians, churches were teaching that the Bible could not be trusted regarding the true nature of Jesus. That there was a one true God, but Jesus may not be so divine after all. And many, many conservative churches and denominations were rejecting the idea that Jesus was indeed divine and even rejecting the doctrine of the Trinity. And I know it's hard to believe we live in a world where we think things are always getting more and more and, you know, liberal and away from the truth. Uh, but in fact, even the most liberal church groups in our day, they disagree and they often look back at this very odd era of the church with scorn. But you have to understand the era and how all this took place. And I think it's important to talk about because I think we can understand kind of in our own era the struggle that is always present. But between the, 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 the big time period of 1700 and 1920 is often referred to, and you can, the dates move around, but the age of science and reason. And this was a time period when the Enlightenment had, had made a big impact in our world, Europe and America especially. The scientific revolution had changed the way people viewed the world, the way people understood the universe, the way people understood sickness and health and so many other things. The, the, the modern movement of philosophy and the ideas like Darwinism calls many people to question century-long-held church beliefs. And, and many begin to look back on the medieval age and the Reformation era and even before that, and they begin to look back at the church ideas and the things the church stood for, and they begin to doubt if these things could be trusted and if even the Bible could be trusted. Suddenly, everyone in this era saw themselves as smarter than everyone who came before. This is not that different from our own era, right? We always think we're smarter than our predecessors. And people begin to throw out everything that was pre-1700. If it was music, if it was design, methodologies, it was all thrown out, considered inferior and out of date. The church in Europe fell under this spell and Many of America's founding fathers even, as, as much as they believed in an almighty God, they were highly influenced by these ideas. And in the 1700s and 1800s, there was this struggle in America between the leaders and the populace uh, as the intellects of our country were spellbound by these newfound beliefs. They considered themselves deists. They denied the Trinity. They denied that Jesus was truly God they doubted the Bible as true, and most of them thought the Bible was an allegory. They were skeptical of the miracles of Jesus. They denied His resurrection. And all of this started with some theologians that came out of Germany, but it spread everywhere. And meanwhile, in the grassroots of America, revival was spreading, and the great awakenings were taking place, bringing people to a place of trusting in God's Word and affirming the long-held doctrines of the Reformation and before 
But as time would go on, the nation was divided by war. Revival flamed out. And these liberal concepts denouncing Jesus' divinity, the biblical authority, became prominent in almost every mainstream denomination. By the late 1800s and the early 1900s, the American church was in extreme trouble and the effect would linger for years to come. Ideas like the virgin birth, the miracles of Jesus, the Bible's teachings were let go. And it was only until recently, as in less than 50 years ago, that denominations like the Southern Baptist Convention went back and reaffirmed these things that were at one time in question and, 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 and doubted. All because men like D.L. Moody and Louis Klopsch believed their, all hope was not lost. It would never be lost as long as God's Word was still available and accessible. And this led to a groundswell movement of spreading and sharing God's Word and refusing and relenting to preach and promote anything but God's Word as the full and final authority and the answer to our greatest needs. Louis Klopsch wanted to bring attention to what he believed and what many apologists have since taught that the church and Christianity was indeed future-proof. Klopsch began cheerleading this simple yet profound idea that the work of Jesus can still change lives. The words of Jesus can carry the power of His work forward forever. And here's an article. You can look this up. If you just Google Lewis Klopsch, you'll find the Crossway article where this quote is pulled from. It sheds a new radiance upon the sacred pages by which the reader is enabled to trace unerringly the scarlet thread of prophecy from Genesis to Malachi. Like the star which led the Magi to Bethlehem, this light shining through the entire Word leads straight to the person of the divine Messiah as the fulfillment of the promise of all the ages. He wanted to bring attention to the words of Jesus because he wanted people to realize the words of Jesus make the whole Bible make sense and complete. And here's what I think. Rather, here's what I know and I believe. The whole book is inspired, but I can't convince you to read it all. And I can't argue every and combat every alleged contradiction in theory against this or that. And ultimately, we won't be, and no one is going to be judged whether they believe all the book or have read all the book. But we will all be judged based on what we did with Jesus. We will all be judged based on our response to Jesus. And that's where my agenda starts and stops. Jesus has left an undeniable impact on our world. God's Word makes it clear for all to see for themselves what He did and what He can still do. So my goal is similar to Lewis Klopsch's. If I can get you to pay attention to the words in red, not even all of them, just some of them, I think it can be enough to change your life. The Apostle John uh, records a scenario when the Pharisees and the priests and the elders wanted to arrest Jesus, and they told Rome he was a threat. And this was one of their initial attempts to try to take him down. And they sent the soldiers to arrest Jesus. And it's so amazing how this little, so often overread story goes down. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. Well, we were just listening to it. You listened to his sermon? Have you heard you? Y'all heard him? Nicodemus is sitting there like, yeah, yeah, you people, y'all need to listen to this guy. And the rest of them were indignant. 
You mean we sent you to arrest the guy and you listened to his sermon? They're like, yeah, we listened to him and we can't arrest him because this guy is special. And we're going back tomorrow for round two. The words of Jesus are so provocative. They're so jarring. They're so abnormal. The things he said, we would call anybody else dangerous and deranged if they said these things. If they were just a mere man. Now, don't walk out yet. I mean, Jesus called himself the light of the world. I mean, if anybody does that, we call them an egomaniac and we block them and go away from them, right? We ridicule them and we make fun of them. But Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. I'm the door to the kingdom of God. I'm the good shepherd and you're God's sheep. I'm the vine from which all life flows. I'm the way. I'm the truth and the life. That's what crazy people say. Cult leaders say those things. But Jesus said one other thing that made him stand apart from everybody else. He said, guys, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to give up. I'm going to give in. I'm going to let... I could stop it. I've got all the power in the world, right? I am large and in charge. But I am going to let this happen to me. And they looked at him like, what? I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going to give up. I'm going to lose. You're all going to see it. And mark my words, though, three days later, I'm going to be back. Now, nobody ever paid attention to the resurrection prediction because they couldn't understand how in the world can God's Messiah, a man who claims to be the light and the bread and the way and the truth and the life, how could you ever mention dying? I mean, Messiahs don't bleed. Messiahs don't die. Messiahs don't lose. But nonetheless, Jesus kept saying it. And then it happened. And then he came back to life three days later, and everybody was shocked and in awe. But listen closely. If, that, if he had not returned, none of his words would have been written down. And most definitely, none of them would still be read and still be in. But because he did return, his followers who unfollowed, refollowed, and began to spread the word all over. But if he hadn't came back, red letters or not, they wouldn't matter. But because he rose again, we can't ignore him. Because his words were written down, we cannot ignore them, can we? Can we? No, we can't. And for somebody that might be listening, for somebody that might be thinking, you know, Justin, I just don't know about that resurrection stuff. I mean, how can a man come back to life? How can all that be? My only request to you is that you pause and think. If Jesus was just a hoax, why are his words still around? Did a group of outlaws and outcasts in the first century really have that much power to pull this off and build something that would last 2,000 years? This didn't start with a state sponsorship or a ruler on a throne of earth enforcing adherence. This started with a man being crucified and people running and dying for decades because of their faith. I only ask you, how do you explain it all? Unless there were something supernatural behind it all. How do you explain that billions of people on this planet right now have eerily similar testimonies of His words and the feeling of the Spirit moving and breathing and changing their lives? How do you respond to those realities? 
I only ask you to consider those questions because even if you're skeptical, it's still impossible to ignore the impact that Jesus has had on your world. And you'd be foolish to outright ignore him, wouldn't you? So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to get a tease of it today. But in Matthew's gospel, we're going to look through the words of Jesus with the attitude and the perspective that we can't afford to ignore anything he says. Because if he is really who he says he was, we can't miss anything. And if you were to open up the New Testament and you were to just look for the words in red, you would come to a few words that I think, and as I begin to study this, really floored me as how Matthew sequences them when Jesus begins to preach. So in a way, we're putting this whole inspiration into a test because God knows as you would open up the New Testament and turn to the first first few pages, we're going to experience this hopefully like anybody would ever experience that would just pick up a Bible having never read it before and coming to the first words in red that they see. Now Matthew's gospel opens up and lets us know that Jesus is a big deal. All of Jewish history has been building up and leading to him. Matthew details the Old Testament uh, prophecy predicting his name, his birthplace, the circumstances surrounding his birth. Matthew bets the farm on Jesus. Matthew says, listen, if we're, as Jewish believers, if Jesus is not our Messiah, we should just pack up and quit because the entire Old Testament is, is, in, is unuseful and unfulfilled apart from Jesus. And he made a lot of Jewish people mad when he said that. And to this day, Jews are offended when, when Matthew, if you were to put those words in Matthew's mouth. But Matthew bets the farm. He bets the entire Old Testament, Israel's purpose, the law's purpose, the prophecies. He bets it all on Jesus. And he jumps a couple decades after the birth story and he introduces a prophet named John who bridges the gap from old to new. And John's in the Jordan River and he's baptizing people, a Jewish cleansing ceremony, but he's doing it differently. Instead of sprinkling them or anointing them, he's immersing them in a river and he's saying, we're getting ready because God's about to do something that's going to change the world. And as I'm watering, as I'm baptizing you with water, he's going to baptize you with the Spirit of heaven. So Jesus tells John, or Jesus shows up on the shore of Galilee as John is baptizing. So listen to this as we're given the first statement of Jesus according to Matthew. Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. And Jesus answered and said to him. Now this is the first statement that Jesus makes in Matthew. So again, I know Mark and Luke and John have different stories, but Matthew wants us to pay attention because this is the first word out of Jesus' mouth according to Matthew's story. And notice it's an answer, as in the Old Testament ended with a big question mark. What is Israel's purpose? What are we going to do about the law? No one can keep it. What are all those prophecies about? It ended with a big question mark, and Jesus answers the question. Permit it or suffer it. Or allow it to be so now. Now things are going to be different. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So that's a little wordy, but here's what he's saying. I have come, and this is the beginning of a new era, and I am going to fulfill all that has led up to this. Listen to me if you want to know what's next. 
And notice in verse 16, when he'd been baptized, Jesus came up out of the water. And behold, the heavens were open. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, a lightning upon him or descending upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the Father, the voice of the Old Testament, God that the Jews did not realize was as complex as He actually is, the triune God that we know about from the New Testament, who always has been, God the Father says, hey, y'all been listening to me for a long time. From now on, I always have been leading up to this, but from now on, I'm speaking through Jesus. So if you want to know what I've got to say, pay attention, because this is the beginning of something brand new. Right, We're part of this. If you have any questions, Jesus says, listen to me. And the Father says, yeah, what He said, listen to Jesus. Because He'll take care of you. He'll teach you all how to understand all that I've said. He'll, you know, everything that else I have to say will come through Him. Now in case you're wondering, this is intentionally a very strong and powerful introduction to Jesus. Can you imagine, right? Matthew wants us to understand Jesus is not just a prophet. He is the Messiah coming to fulfill all that has ever been predicted to usher in a new era. And Matthew wants us to listen to Him. Matthew's already told us that Jesus is the Christ in chapter 1, verse 1. He's already told us He's the King of the Jews. He's God with us. He's the promised Messiah. So it's not a coincidence that Matthew introduces us to Jesus with His first words being, Hey, I'm the guy you've been waiting for, looking for. Look no further. I'm all you need. And John tells, Jesus tells John, I need you to baptize me, not because I'm a sinner, but for the opposite reason everyone else is getting baptized. I need you to baptize me because I need to become like y'all so that y'all, he didn't speak with a southern drawl, but I'm going to put those in his mouth. I need you to, I need to do, I need to become like y'all so y'all can become like me. Right? I need you to baptize me not because I've sinned, but because y'all have, and I'm going to be immersed in your sin, but I'm coming back up clean, and everybody else is too. Woo, right? I'm going to fulfill what you couldn't. I'm going to obey God's law, fulfill God's prophecies, save God's people, and do for you what you could not and cannot do for yourselves. So God puts His stamp of approval on this statement. That's what verse 17 is about. He says, this is my son. Listen to him. I'm out. From here, Jesus is tempted by the devil. And these next three, the next three sentences in red, we're not going to really focus on because they're really Jesus quoting the Old Testament, which shows that he's affirming the Old Testament as God's word. He's putting those words in his mouth, right? As in he inspired them originally. But I want to pay specific attention to chapter 4, verse 4, because Jesus quotes an Old Testament passage as he's being tempted in the wilderness when he's hungry. And Satan is trying to get him to turn stones into bread. And Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy in verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's not saying that you shouldn't eat. Well, maybe he's saying that, but I'm just kidding. He's simply saying that we all have a greater hunger for a connection with God than we do comfort of this world. You hear that? You have a greater need for comfort from God than you do comfort from this world. I know it feels like you need it from here more than you need it from there, but that's because we've been disconnected from there. 
And sometimes the need that you think is so pressing from here is really a reflection of a need that you have from there. You can have a full belly, a thick wallet, and a big house and be years to the good, but if you lack a connection with God, you're still empty. And that's what Jesus was saying to us back in 15. I'm going to fulfill, verse 4, I'm going to fill. If you want to be fulfilled, if you want to be full, you need a relationship with Jesus. And what He's telling us back in verse 15, what He's telling us here, and what God's trying to tell us here, Jesus' words are enough to sustain us when the world has drained us. But there's two more major statements by Jesus before He kicks off His ministry. Chapter 4, verse 17 and 19. And again, if you take verse, if you take 3.15 and then look at 4.17 and 4.19, these three major initial statements, it's so amazing. It's almost so simply given to us. It's the simple steps of becoming a Christian. Look at verse 4.17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In 19, follow me and I'll make you something. I'll make you, I'll make you one of my followers. I'll make you a fisher of men. I'll change you. So notice what, how, how it's went down. He comes off and he says, Hey John, from now on, y'all need to listen to me. And the father says, Yeah, listen to him. And then he says, Repent. And then he says, Follow. Listen. Turn. Follow. If you want alliteration... Read, receive, remain. Isn't that amazing how Matthew presents Jesus to us for the first time? You need to listen to him. And the idea that Jesus' words are so powerful, as you're going about your life, as you're just listening to his word, all of a sudden it's going to stop you in your tracks. And you've got to make a decision. Heaven's that way, and I'm going this way. The kingdom is that way, and I'm going this way. And Jesus says, repent, which is not change everything about yourself. It's change your mind. So as you're going around about your life, and you're going in this direction, and you hear the Word of God, He says, I want you to stop. Because heaven's right there. Turn around. And follow me. The hardest part is the repenting. The hardest part is stopping and admitting you're going in the wrong direction. But come on. What would it look like if you listened to Jesus before you listened to anybody else? How different could your life be? What if at every crossroad, before every decision, before every moral, financial, professional, personal decision you've got to make, what if you stopped and thought? And you wore the wristband in the 90s, didn't you? What would Jesus do? And, and, and good news. If you want to know what Jesus would do, listen to what Jesus said. It's not a mystery. You don't got to pray about it. Read about it. You don't got to wait. Well, I don't know. Jesus hadn't told me. He already has. It's not a mystery. And that's good news, right? Because Jesus offers so much truth concerning the deepest issues of every personal concern. He taught how to deal with anger before it becomes hate. He taught how to deal with lust before it becomes adultery. He taught how to save relationships before they're too far gone. He taught about the sacred nature of commitments, the secret of letting go of grudges. 
He taught us to love with, as the highest of all virtues. He taught how humility is the key to the kingdom. He taught that giving, not taking, is the source of joy. He addressed fear, anxiety, and uncertainty in such a way that has the potential to give you undying courage and hope no matter what you face. If you read just the beginning chapters of Matthew, Jesus covers our biggest problems and biggest battles. He addresses anger and lust and greed and jealousy and judgment, insecurity, anxiety, fear, hypocrisy from private to personal to political to professional. He deals with everything. And here's where I kind of poke you a little bit, but it's necessary. What if we took reading Jesus' words as seriously as he took bleeding for us. That convicts me too, so don't worry. What if we took studying Jesus' word as sacredly as he took saving our souls? How different could our lives, how different could our world be? He outlines the benefits, the consequences. He's so convicting, he's also so right, isn't he? And you read his words and you're like, wow. And he says, listen, turn away from every other source and follow me. And here's the thing. The church has swung back the last hundred years. The church does not feel intimidated or threatened by science or reason anymore. We don't see the value in discovering. We don't see the, 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 the importance of debating every single you know, argument that comes our way. The, our foundations are not crumbling. We, we don't need to reconcile scripture with every textbook. God gets glory from all that stuff, but we don't need to bat, you know, go to battle with all those people, and we've realized that. But our generation has fallen victim to something far worse and far more dangerous. Whereas people before tried to rationalize the words of Jesus, we've become a generation that outright rejects them. The modern age that we spoke of earlier, it was known about science, as the age of science and reason, but the postmodern age is what the fancy folks call it. The ideas of relativism, which means, what's relative to you? How, how do you feel about it? Well, I don't agree with that. Well, that's fine. Well, the way I read it's different than the way they read it, and that's fine. Subjectivism is all about there's no absolute truth. It's subject to your opinion. And we've taken the words of Jesus, and we've decided that there is no absolute authority, that He isn't absolutely right about everything, but we can pick and choose as we want to, as we feel like we should. And even in today's Christian movements, we've decided that there's even greater inspiration out there that we can even supplant and replace the Scripture with. Has that made anybody more like Jesus? Has it made anybody more godly? We've chased after riches of the world as a result. Not the kingdom. It's muddied the water of what even it means to be a Christian. Anybody's a Christian based on the, our own or our postmodern ideas. And I don't say this to come down on anybody, but it's simply to suggest that all of this has happened to the detriment of the church, to the demise of every wholesome Christian virtue and value. What if we, I don't know, actually opened the words of Jesus and took Him at His word? What if we listened to Jesus and turned and changed the way we thought instead of trying to change what He said? 
And what if we just followed Jesus? What a novel idea. What if Jesus' commandment to love our enemies really took roots in your heart? And you didn't try to say, well, he doesn't know what I'm going through. And yeah, I know that's the Bible, but you know what? I've got this going on, and it's okay if I don't do that because Jesus knows what I'm going through, and he's okay with it. Really? Yeah. He told me I didn't have to love that person. You know what, Jesus, you know, I know that the Bible talks about anger and lust and greed and fear, but you know what, I'm just, you know, that just doesn't work for me. And I'm not trying to mock you or belittle you. What if we took Jesus seriously about money, relationships, about hell? Before we get into all that in the coming weeks, I can promise you in advance, based on the simple invitation... You ready for this? If we read the red letters, our lives will will undeniably be better. That's simple enough, isn't it? Red letters equals live better. You got that? Let's say that together. Red letters, live better. Red letters? That's simple. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus took on the core of human emotions and decision-making. Listen to how he closes that sermon. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat on that house and it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. And he's pointing at himself right now. He's thinking, yeah, I'm the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, We'll be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. And so it was, Jesus ended these sayings, He ended these words and people were astonished at His words. We need to be astonished at His words more often, don't we? Then I read the red letters. And the ground began to shake. The prison walls started falling. And I became a free, a new person that day. Is it that simple? You bet it is. There are a lot of questions you might still have. And I argue that you don't need all the answers for you to experience this. I think Jesus is louder. He is bolder. He is more defining and more empowering. He is louder than your doubt. He is louder and greater than every word of doubt and fear and skepticism that you might have in your head right now. He rose from the dead whether you realize it or not. He's not waiting on or He does not need our affirmation. He paid the price for our sin whether we receive it and accept it or not. That's the awesome thing about Jesus. His work is done and it's available whether we receive it or not. He doesn't need you to believe to make Him real. His Word and Spirit don't need our faith to become powerful. But apart from Him, we remain weak, empty, and lost. This shouldn't insult anybody. It should confirm your struggle. Hopefully it invites you to come as you are. Jesus simply began his whole ministry by saying, listen, turn, follow. You've listened. I hope you have. You've listened so far. Next step is, are you going to turn? Are you going to repent? Are you going to say, okay, I've been going this direction for a long, long time, and I've heard these words, and whoo they are good. 
Are you going to turn? Are you going to follow? He says, I'll take care of the rest. I'll give you rest. I'll change your heart. Would you do that today? Maybe if you've been a Christian for a long time, but you need to return. You need to turn again. You need to follow Him anew. Would you come to Him today? Would you listen with your ears, turn with your eyes, and just follow Him? And I promise you this. I promise you. A better life awaits you. The red letters invite you. So would you come?